Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, L. Russ. Hey everyone, welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, uh, coming to you from beautiful Malibu, California. It's a gorgeous sunny day here. And today we have one of my favorite podcasters on the show, Evan Brand of the Not Just Paleo Podcast. He's not just a podcaster, he's an author and a Louisville, Kentucky-based board-certified holistic nutritionist, a certified functional medicine practitioner, nutritional therapist, and personal trainer. And he's just really passionate about healing the chronic fatigues, obesity, and depression epidemics after solving his own IBS and depression issues. So he's got a lot of personal experience. He uses at-home lab testing and can work with you remotely with a wide range of health symptoms. Um, His Not Just Paleo podcast has over 6 million downloads and counting, and you should really check it out. It's a great podcast. He's also the author of a few books, Stress Solutions, REM Rehab, and The Everything Guide to Nootropics. And I want to let everyone know he works with people remotely, he offers a free 15-minute functional medicine phone consultation at his site, evanbrand.com. That's E-V-A-N, brand, B-R-A-N-D.com. Welcome to the show. Elle, thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning. I, I love listening to your podcast because of your functional medicine background and all of the nuances you bring to health issues, which a lot of people, again, I think we're in, in this day and age, we're getting more, we're getting closer to the fact that people are starting to realize we need to look at the whole picture and you can't go to your HMO doctor, get a pill and leave and expect that to be the fix. So before we get into some of the topics we're going to talk today uh, regarding variety of infections that can really affect our health and other symptoms, tell us about your own personal journey. I mean, solving IBS and depression is a huge thing. So I'd love to hear how you got into your work. Sure. Yeah. I always like to go back to my college days. I was in business school My first priority when I went into a college classroom or a new building was figure out where the bathroom was because I had modified my lifestyle to fit my illness. And I thought that was just a normal part of life. I was just going to have to deal with having to run to the bathroom in the middle of the class. And once you start looking around and you see not everybody's dealing with this, you think, man, this really cannot just continue like this. My life, my energy, my sleep, my ability to tolerate stress, my skin issues, All of this was falling apart at the seams, and I was also working third shift at the same time. I was working at UPS to pay for college, so I was working midnight to 5 a.m., which all of you primal listeners know it's about the worst thing you can do is to disobey the laws of Mother Nature and the sun, which is what I did. Agreed. And so I quickly realized I have to get off third shift. I knew that was my first goal. If I ever wanted to cure depression, I had to live with the sun and fix my circadian rhythm. So that was the first part. And then the IBS remained. Even after I removed gluten from the diet, I figured out that I had to basically go grain-free as well, go more autoimmune paleo. Because for me, I still had some of these undiagnosed sensitivities, even almonds and avocados I had to pull out at one time to kind of hit the reset button that had been pressed for so long. So this is something that I see all the time, but something I've had firsthand experience with A lot of times, if you look at a food guru, which is what I did, I would look at different food gurus and read blogs, listen to podcasts, do all the research that everyone else is doing, but all of the cookie cutter approaches never fully worked. And it was because I never fully pulled enough of everything out of my life that had to be pulled out before I could add things back in. I went to the conventional doctors. Of course, they've got antidepressants for you. They've got antispasmatic drugs. They've got acid blockers. And I remember talking with an MD and I told her, I said, well, you're wanting to put me on this prescription acid blocker. Can you explain why I feel better when I take hydrochloric acid and enzymes? And she goes, that's not possible. You have too high stomach acid. That's causing your IBS. That's causing you to have these flare-ups with your gut. Just take this acid blocker. And we kind of went back and forth for a few minutes. And I just said, look, this is not going to work out. Please save the piece of paper, save your prescription pad. I'm not interested. And I left. And at that point, 
I had always, I wouldn't say I was against the conventional medical approach, but I knew that I was a skeptic. And it was after that event that I fully said, okay, you know what? I've got to go, I've got to go functional. I've really got to start getting my hands dirty with functional medicine because there's just no answers available. And I hear this every week from people that deal with Kaiser and all of these other conventional systems. Uh, for example, in Canada, I had a client yesterday who she emailed me and she said, Evan, I've been begging my medical doctor to run my TPO and TG antibodies like you suggested, and they won't do it. That's right. And I said, well, just you know, tell them you're working with me and give them my website, give them something, you know, give them this article. Here's this podcast. Just tell them, look, I really need these antibodies run. And the system in Canada, for example, they just won't do it. And with the, with the blood test company I use, they're not, they're not able to, to help her out either. So usually I can get blood for people, but for her, I can't. So, you know, to transition off of me onto someone else, it's interesting that in 2017, when we have so much data about these biomarkers are very important. You must have these biomarkers if you're seeking true health and happiness, but people are still getting stonewalled by their physicians. And that's just very frustrating. Yeah. And I want to interject on Kaiser uh, on that one. They won't even test free T3. Like it's just not even available. <laughs> to, I mean, really? yeah, uh, it's, it's really bad. Uh, I don't even think they test reverse T3. They might, but they don't even test free T3. And so there's been a lot of people I've spoken to where they can't even get that test run or they have to go outside of that. So when you have an entire insurance company that is not even open to testing the very important marker, as you and I both know, uh, for that, and of course, if they're not running the antibodies, that's a problem. So I agree with you. You've got to go functional these days if you want to get to the bottom of a complex uh, issue. I want to talk about, you mentioned in your story, healing your gut and the depression, and the, you mentioned HCL and digestive enzymes. Can you explain that a little bit to people who don't know who that is? Because a lot of times hypothyroid patients, as they're getting better, use HCL and digestive enzymes as a way to help things along until their natural production sort of comes back. But can you talk about what that is for the people that don't understand HCL? Sure. So you've got these cells in your gut called parietal cells. Now, these actually secrete basically the manufacturing plant, if you will, of hydrochloric acid. And so the optimal pH is there's a there's a bit of a range, but generally about 1.5 to 3 on the pH scale, which is so acidic if you cut open a little hole and poured out the stomach acid onto your shoe, it would melt your Vibram five finger open and you know burn your toes. That's what you want. You want a highly acidic environment in the stomach, which is one, it's going to cleave off your minerals. It's going to pull your iodines off your food. It's going to turn your proteins into raw amino acids so that you can manufacture neurotransmitters. It's going to suppress the growth of any sort of pathogenic bacteria. It's going to kill any parasites or yeast that could be on your food if it wasn't properly cooked or handled. And so this is really the first stop, if you will, where the food really has a, the ability to get broken down. If you're one out of a million people who does not have low stomach acid, and I'll go into the reasons why, you're very lucky, but in the modern world, we've got people that are playing on Instagram and Facebook and they're scrolling on their phones while they're eating when they should be focusing on chewing their meals and resting and digesting. So when we're talking about HCL and enzymes, we have to use supplemental forms of these for a period of time. It could be three months, could be six months, it could be a year. It's especially longer if we've got someone that's had a history of being on a prescription acid blocker, some sort of over-the-counter anti-acid because we've suppressed the natural production of HCL so long, it's sort of like testosterone, if you will. You give a man steroids, his testicles shrink, his body forgets and basically gives up on producing testosterone. Similar thing happens with the parietal cells, and especially if we've got a bacterial infection like H. pylori, which is pretty common, that also suppresses optimal HCL levels. So it's almost like how with Lyme disease, for example, you've got these stealth infections that can come along with it where they'll confuse the immune system. They'll sort of hide from the immune system. So the immune system doesn't really know what's going on. And the same thing with H. pylori and parasites and bacterial infections, these things can basically prevent the body from making optimal acid and enzymes because, well, they need to eat just like you. And so they want undigested food particles to feed on. So who cares about your optimal digestion if you've got bugs? They want to eat. And so when we look at something called an organic acids test, we can't directly measure HCL and you don't really need to do what's called the Heidelberg test where you put a capsule with a string on it 
down your throat into your gut to measure pH. It's really unnecessary. We can infer that someone has low HCL and enzymes if they've got gas, they've got bloating, they've got burping, just any sort of indigestion. If they just don't feel satiated after a meal, so let's say they eat an hour or two later, even if it was a high-fat meal or what we would consider a good primal meal, if they still feel hungry an hour or two after or they're quickly rebounding, Obviously, there's a blood sugar component to this as well, but a lot of times that's just malabsorption. And then also people can look at their fingernails, and if you've got any vertical ridges or vertical lines that you can feel on the surface of your fingernails, we can assume based on that that you're lacking in the trace minerals that are necessary to manufacture hair, skin, and nails. This is why so many women have issues with all three of those at the same time. That could also be linked to low stomach acid and enzymes. And like I mentioned, some of the causes, well, it could just be that you're playing on your phone when you should be eating. It could be that you're not chewing enough. It could be that you've got gut infections that haven't been found or addressed. It could be that you're eating in a loud environment. I know for me, if I've gone to a restaurant, let's say I go to a grass-fed burger joint, but they've got the music blasting and there's tons of people and glasses clinking with the servers, I feel like I don't digest my meal as much. You know, So just eating in a quiet space, just like your ancestors would have done, I mean, this is why a lot of these fast casual restaurants, this is why they're so loud. They want to get people in and out quickly. So optimal digestion is not happening in these places. You've got typically uh, a hard floor. You've got a high ceiling. You've got a lot of echoing. You're pretty much in and out. And I think it's a subconscious where you're eating faster because your nervous system's probably like, hey, look, this is not a parasympathetic rest and digest mode for me right now. You're kind of in fight or flight while you're eating your meal, which obviously that's not good because you can't be in sympathetic, go, 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 fight or flight and parasympathetic at the same time. It's basically one or the other. I want to go through a couple of, you already mentioned Lyme's disease. So I want to talk to you about that. And then I want to get into some of these other infections you, you brought up and we'll talk about more. Let's talk about Lyme's disease. A couple of things. First of all, I've heard from a lot of people that there's so many doctors that just don't even believe in it. So I want to hear from you about that um, and why they wouldn't or why they would discount it. And secondly, if you can give everyone a layman's understanding of what Lyme disease is and how it can affect the body. Because we do know that Lyme disease infection can actually cause a reverse T3 issue, it can screw up your thyroid, among other things. Um, so if you could give us a snapshot of Lyme and and start off with maybe why doctors discount it, don't test for it, or think it's a joke. Sure. That's a totally great question, Neil. The first reason is because they can't. Uh, one medical doctor that my wife and I went to a few years ago, we, we thought she had Lyme. Uh, we go hiking several times per week. We're pretty deep in the forest very often. And that's just part of my, my mental health strategy. And we didn't see any tick. We didn't see any bite, but my wife started to have joint pain that was migrating. So one morning she woke up, she was so stiff and almost, I mean, I cried that day. She was so stiff when she woke up, she couldn't put her, uh, her bracelet on. And she said, babe, I need you to help me put this bracelet on. I, I can't move my wrist. And I thought, oh Jesus, what is this? So of course, first thing that comes to mind is Lyme and all the co-infections. So I ran a test panel on her and she was negative for Lyme, fortunately, but she showed up with mycoplasma pneumonia. And so when we're talking about Lyme, many times it's not just Lyme, or if it is Lyme, it's also Lyme plus these other co-infections. So mycoplasma pneumonia, it can manifest a lot of symptoms similar to Lyme, but it is a little bit easier to knock out. So I put her on an herbal protocol, which included astragalus and cat's claw and a bunch of other immune supporting herbs. And once we supported the immune function, once we supported her collagen structures, once we shut down the inflammation, she was better. And, and now she's perfectly fine. But And was that caused by a tick bite though, is what you're saying? So it didn't necessarily, the tick bite caused one thing, but not the other? Right. So it likely did not have the Lyme, but it had the other co-infections with it because a lot of times you can have five or 10 co-infections with it. So maybe if you don't have the Borealis, which is the bacteria of the Borella, that's the Borella bacteria that, that it caused Lyme disease. You might not have Borella, but you may pick up something else. And there was also cytomegalovirus, which was another one she showed up with, which often they go undiagnosed. And I want to make sure I answer your question about why does this go undiagnosed and why do doctors deny this? Well, because they're actually not allowed to. When we took her to a clinic to 
uh, speak with the MD and we were going to ask about, well, should we do doxycycline, which is the one of the most strongest antibiotics that a lot of people use. Um, now, it, which she actually just got another tick bite last week, and we are not going to do antibiotics. I've done enough research that I'm confident in my ability to use herbs with her now. And we're going to send off the tick for testing and see see what it's got. But long story short, the medical doctor told us there's no insurance code for Lyme. So he can't diagnose it. So even if he thinks that's what's going on, all he could do legally was to give us one or two weeks of doxycycline, which even that wouldn't be enough. Typically, you would need a month of the doxycycline to actually do something. And he said, I've got no code to even write this up to give you guys a full month of prescription. So that's the main reason. So it has to be then really done through a functional uh, practitioner, yeah. functional medicine practitioner. Yeah. Okay. So that's the only way to really get down to investigating that. Yeah, you'd have to because even the LLMD, so the Lyme literate medical doctors, even then they're not trained or they don't have experience in using herbs. So although they may be literate in Lyme, meaning they can recognize and they can make a, a more of a clinical diagnosis because a lot of times you may show up negative with blood because of the the inaccuracy of the testing, a lot of times still they're going to put you on antibiotics or even a pick line, which I don't know if you've seen people on those, but it's it's quite scary. They basically walk around with this uh, IV antibiotic in their upper arm. Oh, God. I went to a Lyme meetup group and everybody's just sitting around with the bags in their arms. And I was like, wow, uh, I do not want to go this route. Oh, I don't want to be a part of any meetup group that's got IVs. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Unless it's a, a vitamin B IV. I don't know if right. I want to um, participate. T tell us, what are some other symptoms? So you mentioned your wife. So like having some joint pain, being stiff, having that kind of suddenly come up. I know the general, I don't feel wells, right? Like someone feeling just fluish and like they've got this flu that won't go to go away. What are some other things people can look out for? I know that if you've been in the woods, sometimes there is what they call this classic like ring, right? You will see something on your skin, a bullseye. Can you tell tell us a little bit about what to look for if someone's out there and they've got the, you know, undiagnosed, I don't feel wells, uh, what would maybe think, you know, what would tip them off to go, ooh, I need to go to a, you know, get Lyme looked at? Sure. So a lot of times people get diagnosed with chronic fatigue. Now, this is just my personal assumption based on how many cases I've seen. I would estimate about 50% of people that have got diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome actually have Lyme and or some sort of co-infection. And That's huge. Yeah. That's huge. And this is just something I've seen. A lot of times you're going to have brain fog. You're going to have insomnia because the Lyme and the other type of bacteria, they disrupt sleep. And so you may be wide awake, especially during a full moon. So people pay attention to the moon cycle. If you notice it during a full moon, your sleep is disrupted. That's a sign of potentially Lyme and co-infections, but a lot of times parasites as well. And back to my story with depression and IBS, I had two parasites, Cryptosporidium and Giardia, and I also had uh, bacterial infections and Candida. So I had a lot of whammies at the same time. And every full moon, like clockwork, I would be up in the middle of the night. And are you sure you're not, it's not because you're a werewolf? Because let's be honest. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, definitely not. Wow, that's really amazing. The full the full moon. Tell us, why does it disrupt sleep? Is it affecting cortisol and it's over? It, it's affecting the adrenal glands that way that overproduces so you have high nighttime cortisol? Is there some other factor there affecting sleep? No, I think you're spot on. Cortisol is probably the biggest piece of it. When I run a salivary cortisol sample on people, a lot of times we'll see a little bit of a spike in the evening. Now, sometimes if they're taking their last saliva sample at say 10 p.m., the spike might may not have happened yet because it may be a 2 or 3 a.m. issue. So sometimes I'll have the lab ship someone an extra saliva kit. So if they do wake up in the middle of the night, they can take that other sample. And yeah, a lot of times we will see an elevated cortisol. It could be due to the immune system. You know, the immune system's trying to do a lot of work in the middle of the night. So if you've got this internal war going on, whether it's bacteria, parasites, et cetera, you've got this battle going on. And then also inflammation too. So if these bugs are feeding, if they're laying eggs and reproducing, which is typically what they're doing dur during a full moon, they've kind of got that extra energy from the earth, if you will, and, and the moon. Um, during the full moon, they're doing more work and they're reproducing. And when that happens, my suspicion is that that's triggering some type of inflammatory cascade in the body where the body realizes something's going on. And the cortisol is responding, trying to help you. Exactly. It's a threat, right? Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it's kind of, if it, my, my guess is it's doing something with the nervous system where it's triggering, triggering that fight or flight. And then you get the little squirt of adrenaline and cortisol, and then you're up. And 
you can't go back to sleep. So a lot of times, you know, we've got to use passion flower, valerian, chamomile, ashwagandha, things like that in the evening to really help make sure because you, you really can't recover from things like this if you if you have poor quality sleep. Absolutely. And I just also want to make that point in general, when you've got anything in, inflammatory happening, whether it's increased antibodies or gut issues, any kind of inflammation will eventually lead to some adrenal issues, right? Because the adrenals are going to respond in kind to those kind of things. So again, it then will domino into something else maybe eventually until you get it under control. Right. Yeah. I would say I've tested over a thousand people with adrenal panels. Most people, the thing that's funny is, and I'm sure you hear this too, most people think, oh, my cortisol is through the roof. It's got to be so high. I'm so stressed. But to be honest, most people have had chronic stress for so long, even in a simple form such as email or text or phone notifications, just a little ding all day in the background of your email is enough to put you in that fight or flight mode. And that's enough to eventually cause quote unquote adrenal fatigue or HPA axis dysfunction, which is a bit more of a technical term. And actually 95% of people show up with low free cortisol. And this is different than your blood. So if you go to your doctor and they say, hey, we're going to test your cortisol, that doesn't mean much because that's a snapshot. So if you get that blood sample of cortisol, that's like touching the sidewalk in the morning and estimating the forecast. It's pretty pretty invalid. <laughs> right. And then it's usually just morning cortisol, which has nothing to do then with the ups and downs you might be experiencing during the day. So you might not catch something through a morning cortisol test. Right. Yeah. You'll miss the rhythm, which is the whole purpose of the 24-hour collection. Now there's a new panel I'm using. I used to use a four-point, which a lot of people use, but that's only one morning snapshot. So it doesn't tell you much. Luckily, I'm using a six-point now that recently came out. Uh, we're talking in June here. So early 2017, it came out. And now there's three samples in the first hour. So you roll out of bed, you take a sample mm. then, 30 minutes later, and then another 30 minutes later. And now we can track what's called the cortisol awakening response. So we I can, like it. Yeah, so we can basically measure is the hypothalamus actually talking to the pituitary then talking to the adrenals to make adequate levels of cortisol or the analogy i use is your iphone battery getting fully charged in the morning or are you starting your day with only a 50% charge and you got to make phone calls all day most of the time it's the latter and we've got to really work on getting that rhythm back in check and i want to throw out to people listening you know some of the symptoms of low morning cortisol they're obvious it takes a while to get out of bed it takes a while even if you had a couple cups of coffee it would just it would take a, it would be a real dragging situation and you would know because it would take a long time to get going. And that's that's a real indicator right there. Um, let's move into candida. That's such a huge thing. So many people had it. I had it. And as you know, candida can mimic brain fog and some other hypothyroid symptoms. And so it's really important, especially people who think or suspect that they might have a thyroid issue to obviously, you know, get primal, clean out the diet, do elimination, of course, get functional tests. But if you want to try to clean it up naturally, got to start healing the gut and get rid of the candida. The way that I did it personally was I switched up my probiotics um, immediately and then changed the brand every couple of months. It really honestly took very quickly for it to go away. And the other thing that I did was I also used um, a couple drops a day of the very strong uh, oregano P73, the super strength oregano oil. But I only used it for a week out of each month. And that combined with really cutting out all sugar, I mean, even fruit, you know, just forget if it's on the paleo list. I really nipped it. <laughs> I nipped it quickly. I'm, I'm here to tell you, it was pretty fast. I could tell right away that not only the brain issues cleared up, but immediately also appetite situations. So candida can really make you crave sugar and you will be a sugar addict and feel like one when you have candida, which makes it very tough to have willpower. But until you actually nip this thing and get it fixed, you kind of will suffer from that. So give me your opinion and your experience with candida. Let's talk about how it Fs up the entire body. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Well, early on in my training, I'll admit, I sort of prioritized uh, parasites and bacterial infections. And if I saw yeast overgrowth on the stool test, which is rare because most of the time the yeast dies before you poop it out. So a lot of times I have to detect yeast by looking on the organic acids test, which is a urine sample. You could measure something called arabinose or tartaric acid. These are two gases that the yeast produces as a byproduct. And I thought, okay, yeast overgrowth. 
And I knew there were some other symptoms, brain fog, fatigue, sugar cravings, hypoglycemia, adrenal issues, et cetera. And now the more and more and more I've worked with yeast in people, the more I realize, man, this is a really huge systemic issue. It could cause symptoms in almost every body system. So whether we're talking about autoimmunity, whether we're talking about digestive system problems, emotional problems like emotional instability, rage, anger, irritability, whether we talk about itching anuses or itching ears and eyes and nose, whether we talk about fatigue and sleep issues, whether it's hormonal issues, whether it's liver gallbladder pain, whether it's some of the neuro issues like cognitive decline, you know, brain fog, you just can't get the word, you're just a little step slow a little step slower than you want to be. Skin issues, for example, weight issues. I mean, it's everything. And so there's about 20 different species of candida. Now, the ones we're most commonly going to see is going to be candida albicans and candida SPP. Now, I love how you mentioned about the oregano. That's a great approach. I use oregano very often, depending on what I'm up against. If it's a yeast overgrowth plus a bacteria or a yeast plus a parasite problem, we're going to have to use a little bit different game plan. If it's just yeast, yeah, maybe we can get away with the oregano, but a lot of times I'm stacking that with something like an olive leaf or a Paul de Arco or barberry, bearberry, black walnut, grapeseed extract, wormwood, et cetera. I'm kind of mixing and blending and making my protocols based on whatever I'm up against. But I had massive yeast overgrowth in my gut. I mean, I would look pregnant even after something as simple as a sweet potato. And you think, wow, I thought I was able to do a little bit of starch. Nope. Sometimes you can't until you address the yeast. And a lot of times, once again, people get misdiagnosed with something. They may get told that they've got chronic fatigue or they've got people start worried. I had one lady, she thought she had Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. She's like, my brain is not working at all. And we go through a six, eight-week protocol to get rid of the yeast. She had massive levels, I'll tell you. It was a very high off-the-charts reading. But we knocked it out, and then her brain's back to normal. So this stuff can... It's amazing, by the way. It really, really, the brain thing, it's... And again, because it masks hypothyroid symptoms in terms of exhaustion, mental fatigue, brain fog, also just general malaise, it does affect depression. And so I'm so glad you mentioned all of those uh, symptoms. Also, I want to throw out there, you mentioned like itchy, itchy butt, itchy ears, also... The other thing there too is a lot of hypothyroid patients, that was one of my symptoms as well. You can get ear issues, ear wax issues, and ear issues. They can be hypo-related and also, or candida. And so, you know, again, um, these things really do pop up and you kind of know when it's going on because if you're itching your butt too much, I mean, that's really, that's a perfect sign <laughs> for everybody right there. Um Yeah. Yeah, so I, I I think oregano, and I'm glad we were talking about it, is something I've mentioned before in the podcast. It's something I always keep around, especially if I travel internationally to a place that might be a little bit second or third world. Um, I bring it with me, and I'll take a, a drop or two a day. Um, when I did that and went all over South Africa, the two other people I traveled with that didn't do that got riddled with parasites so badly, one of them went to their brain oh. and had to be hospitalized. Now. When I look back, I attribute the fact that every single day, without fail, I not only brought sort of like a, a green powdered raw kind of, you know, probiotic-y powder with me, I put that in water every day, chugged it like medicine, and then I made sure that twice a day I had a drop of this very strong, you know, uh, oregano, and um, I, I was fine. <laughs> so, wow. so it's really interesting, and I, I really, I mean, again, it could have been an anomaly, but I attribute the fact that we all were traveling together for two weeks, we all pretty much ate the same stuff, we all got the same inoculations before we went, you know, and then the two of them were just riddled with parasites and it was a painful experience for both of them to get better. Yeah. I want to, I want to make a couple notes about that. I think that's super smart. You did that. I always tell people that travel, take enzymes and HCL with you too. If you're doing hydrochloric acid. So I had a female client, she went to India. We had her stool test before she went, she was clear. She came back. She had a bunch of diarrhea. She said, Evan, I didn't really use the enzymes as you, as you suggested. And she showed up with blastocystis hominis, which is a pretty common parasite. And I'm not a hundred percent confident, but I'm 90 plus percent confident. If she would have kept up with the HCL and enzymes with every meal, she likely would have killed that parasite off in the gut before it was able to take residence. And then regarding probiotics, 
sometimes you can bring probiotics in and you can sort of crowd out the yeast if it's a low amount of yeast. Now, if you start getting into moderate or very high amounts of yeast, if you're taking like your Saccharomyces boulardii or your other types of probiotic strains that a lot of people promote, you're likely not going to be able to suppress the yeast just by crowding it out. So think of a neighborhood. If you've got some bad tenants in there, you you may not be able to just move the new guys in and hope that the bad people are going to just evict themselves. You may actually have to evict the bad guys first by using the oregano or using some other type of herbs to kill them. So this is why many people will say, oh, I heard about this this probiotic or this probiotic and I took it and I didn't get results. And it's because sometimes you can't just go straight to seeding and fertilizing. Sometimes you've got to, yeah, you've got (laughs) to kill. You just have to. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that too. And that was one of the reasons behind why my functional medicine doctor Forsman on my book, um, said to only do the oregano like one week of the month, because he felt like you can help kill it a little bit, but then you don't want to kill everything too much. And you want to make sure the probiotics are also working. So that's why we did that combination and he didn't want the oregano every day. Um, does that make sense to you? Yeah, that's wise. And Often, so for probiotics, I tell people to take them before you go to bed because if we're taking, you know, the survivability of the flora is a very big issue. And so I've got a couple custom formulations I've got where I'm ensuring that they're going to live longer because of the t- the tableting technology. However, even then, I still tell people take it before you go to bed because let's say you take a probiotic right now, but you eat lunch in two hours. You're going to be raising HCL. You're going to be raising enzymes. Your pancreas is going to start secreting uh, pancreatic enzymes there. Your gallbladder is going to start secreting bile. So a lot of these digestive processes and juices that happen, you're likely going to kill some of those flora off. But here's the secret. If you take it before you go to bed, there's no competition. So you're going to have a much better chance of getting your bang for your buck and actually delivering the probiotics to the colon like they're intended. And then regarding the oregano, yeah, I think that's a good idea about trying to cycle on and cycle off. Most protocols that I use, I'll tell people it's six or eight weeks. If you have to take the weekends off, because like the oregano oil I've got, it's a soft gel. It's a really strong one. Some Sometimes people need a couple days off. So they'll just do five days on, two days off for the six to eight weeks. And that's enough. But after we're done, we're done. Because if you keep taking that, even though it's natural, it still can be just as powerful as an antibiotic in terms of killing off your good guys. And also, I do believe, I could be wrong, um, but I'm under the impression that too much oregano <clears throat> oil in that strength on a regular basis can be toxic to the liver. No? I don't know about that. I don't, I've never used it long enough to where I've had anybody complain of liver symptoms, but okay. basically with any type of yeast or bacterial or parasitic protocol, I'm always running liver gallbladder support side by side with it. So I'm maybe I'm circumventing that. So I've never had to, to face the issue of a liver toxicity, but I'm typically using, you know, milk thistle, methionine, taurine, artichoke, beet powder, vitamin A, things like that during these killing protocols, just to make sure that it's kind of like Christmas morning, right? It's like you get all these new presents, but now you've got all this trash at the end of the road that the garbage man's going to come pick up, (laughs) but it's the same one poor guy that's coming to get your trash. So I employ extra trash men, which is deliver gallbladder support during these protocols to make sure, okay, look, we're going to kill, kill, kill. Sure. But we've also got to make sure that we can keep up at the other end. What's piling up? We've got to make sure that liver gallbladder are doing their job to help flush all this stuff out and we don't get reinfected. Not to sideswipe the infection conversation, but I just thought of it and I want to ask you your opinion on this and just chat with you about this. You mentioned the organic acids test, which by the way, was invaluable for me. It not only discovered candida, but there was another thing on there that was discovered that was surprising. My serotonin was zero. And at the time, my doctor was like, "Uh, so you have the serotonin of someone who's stressed out all the time and not sleeping, which was absolutely not the case in either way. So I was like, well, that's concerning. And of course, serotonin has everything to do with appetite, candida, they're all linked and how this works together. And so what he had me do was even though 5-HTP is normally reserved for people who have sleep issues, it was I, we used it to raise the serotonin and try it that way before, you know, trying a Prozac or something like that. And, you know, look at work, that's the end result. But I will say this. So I took 5-HTP for about the first couple of days when I took it in the evening, I actually gave me insomnia, which is the exact reaction that it should give you. So I had insomnia all of a sudden, which I've never have. And so that was like, all right, that's weird. So then I tried it taking a little bit earlier. 
And then, you know, I felt like something did happen with a happiness quotient and there was something going on about five weeks later. And I felt like, all right, you know, I think this was the right thing to do. But then around the five week mark, I started to become exhausted all day long in not in a hypo way in a, I I felt like I went out drinking all night and just wanted to sleep all day long. It was really a disaster. And I was looking for answers and I did some research and I read online that some people had mentioned, they were like, well, listen, if that happens to you, if you get really exhausted, that might mean that you've kind of tapped out or done the, it's done the job. And so I stopped taking it, you know what I mean? At that time. And then I kind of reintroduced it a few months later just to see, all right. And a very low dose, by the way, like 50 milligrams. And after a few days, again, the same thing happened to me. I was exhausted all day long and then I stopped it and my energy came back. So I'm just wondering what your impression of, of something like that is. And I also think just to highlight the idea that some things maybe you don't have to do for months and months at a time, right? El, you're you're super smart. You must have tuned into the universe or something to to pull this out of me because I've never been asked that question, and it's such a seemingly random question among all these other topics. But I actually do have personal experience and knowledge of exactly what happens. Oh, I'm so glad we're talking about this. Then. This is great. So here, and and this is why I have a lot of issues with consumer grade supplement companies because a lot of times they attach a marketing term to it where they'll say, "Oh, this is a sleep." cocktail or this is a relaxation formula and they'll put things that alter neurotransmitters in there such as 5-HTP or melatonin or phenogaba which can all influence neurotransmitter production. Now with anything that messes with serotonin, so this is 5-HTP we're talking about, you actually downregulate dopamine if you do this in long term. And I've seen this and I've measured it hundreds of times. Anybody who's had a pass with 5-HTP or anything messing with the serotonin, including SSRIs, once you start – so neurotransmitters are like a spider web, right? You've got your dopamine. You've got your serotonin. You've got your GABA, which is the brakes of the brain. And when you start messing with one side of the web, you're also messing with the other side of the web. So if you come in and you add 5-HTP in, you're actually starting to throw off the proper ratio of serotonin to dopamine. And once you start doing 5-HTP and you're kind of pounding those serotonin pathways and those serotonin receptors, dopamine begins to downregulate. And this is where the fatigue comes in. This is where the exhaustion comes in. This is where also the lack of joy for life, which is a really palpable feeling when you're low with the dopamine, you can feel it. And so if I ever, ever, ever do 5-HTP and Julia Ross, she is really the one who turned me on with her book, The Mood Cure and The Diet Cure. I had her on the podcast. It was like my favorite episode of all time, but um, she really turned me on to amino acid therapy. Now, I don't know if she exactly promotes this, but she at least turned me into the ideology of using amino acids together. And so what I do is if we were going to do 50 milligrams of 5-HTP with you, well, maybe we would also want to do about 500 milligrams of L-tyrosine so that we can support dopamine. And a lot of times if we disbalance, so if we touch both sides of the spider web at the same time, we will bump up both neurotransmitters together. And then if we've got emotional sensitivity, so let's just say You've got some of these serotonin symptoms. You've got some of the dopamine, the fatigue, but you've also got emotional issues like you watch a sappy YouTube video and you just start crying even though it wasn't that sappy. You know, Then I may also bring in DL-phenylalanine or DLPA and we'll do all those together. So we may do a tryptophan or 5-HTP. We may do tyrosine and then we may do DLPA or if we need to support GABA, then we also may want to bring in like an L-glutamine or an L-theanine on top of all those. So that way we're hitting all four corners and then people feel much more balanced and you don't get sort of these wacky ratio symptoms that you're talking about. Yeah, that's interesting. And I do, and I haven't taken the organic acids test since to see, but I, I will tell you from personal experience, I can guarantee that it did what it needed to do. Yeah, for sure. For that short period of time. I, I mean, literally, I mean, you, I could tell in appetite, everything. I mean, it was, it, it worked, you know what I mean? I, I'm pretty confident. It's just interesting that, you know, that happened to me. And I just wanted to point that out to people out there because there are a lot of people with sleep issues that go to that and it might be able to help, but then be aware that, you know, or, or make an iPhone alert, like, all right, how long have I been on this thing? You know, maybe yeah. it's six weeks, do a check-in, right? Because something like that can, you know, again, it led to days of just, I was an exhausted disaster and it was not right. And I remember being like this, the only 
only thing different I've been doing is H- 5-HTP, and after about five weeks, I crash. So yeah. I'm glad I brought that up, and I like all of the nuances to your treatment on that. Well, that was the thing I, I liked about your book is that you share your story in extreme detail. At first, when when I got your book, I actually got it as a Christmas gift, which was cool for my wife. <laughs> that's so awesome. I know. And, I would have just sent you a free copy. <laughs> well, that, that's all right. So I think it was on my Amazon wish list, and then she ended up buying it for me. But I loved how you went into extreme detail because these details that you and I are talking about and that you've shared in your book, for example – these details are hard to come by, but it's the details that really make the difference between someone listening to a podcast and a blog and buying a product, and then they start building up this supplement graveyard, and it's because they didn't, they weren't aware of the details because they didn't get exposed to the details or they thought they could just go blanketly buy a probiotic, a vitamin D, and a 5-HTP and you know fix themselves. But ultimately, it's these minor nuances with people that really determine. Now, you, you made the perfect point, which is the timeline. If you're doing just a short dose of something that affects neurotransmitters, you're totally fine. But whenever I speak with someone, they say, hey, look, I've been on 5-HTP for two years. It's like, oh, man, um, let's go through. And I'll just actually pull up Julia Ross's mood chart. And she's got all these different symptoms for each neurotransmitter. And we'll go through the whole chart together. And they'll say, yep, this is this, 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 this. And typically, they're their whole neurotransmitter balance is off. So I agree with you, you know, as short of duration as possible. I'm kind of a minimalist and I like to apply that minimalist approach to the amino acids or any therapy really, because a lot of times a little bit of something is good, but you can have too much of a good thing, even if it's natural. Now this may be still on the same, this might be repeating what we've already spoken about when we talk about, you know, bacterial parasitic infections and the influence on health. And we've already gone through, you know, candida and Lyme. And you mentioned SIBO and H. pylori. So these are things that can be, you know, detected by a stool sample. I'm going to give a TMI account from a person that I uh, know who had SIBO. And initially I was at a doctor with them and they asked the patient about their bowels and they said, oh, they're normal. But then later on when they got diagnosed with severe SIBO, I said, well, wait a minute. I was with you in the doctor's office. I don't remember you talking about having issues with the bowels, were there any symptoms? And they said, every time I went to the bathroom and had a bowel movement, it was almost as if I chewed up a salad and spit it out. That's what she said it looked like. So I guess I just throwing that out there for anyone who might have that symptom, but let's get into SIBO and H. pylori. These things are very common. They're also fixable. Yes. And so I know you're seeing a lot of it. Gut issues are just on the rise and people probably need to just start there you know, with diet and also optimizing the gut. But let's get into those couple of things and what they cause in people and, you know, how they're affected. For sure. I actually read an article the other day that was talking about how climate change is actually increasing the rate of fungal overgrowth in people because certain areas are getting more rain, like California. I know California got more rain than ever they're saying Yosemite Park is supposed to be amazing. So if you're out listening, go to Yosemite this year. The waterfalls are supposed to be amazing. But people are saying that more places are getting more humid, places are getting wetter, and this is increasing the ability for fungus and things like that to to grow in people's bodies. And I can confirm with over a thousand tests run that nine out of every 10 people shows up with candida. Now, obviously, I may be biased, right? Because typically people that come to me, they've been to 20 doctors or 20 practitioners and naturopaths and all that, and, and they're just done. And so by then, maybe they're at the end of the rope. So I may have a biased you know, client population, but the average is about nine in 10 has yeast. The average is about one in three has parasites. This is people who have not gone out of the country. I've never gone out of the country and I had two parasites. So just because you are US native doesn't mean you're free and clear. <laughs> And then bacterial infections like SIBO, typically that's about two out of every three people. And H. pylori, I would say that's about one out of every three, maybe one out of every four. I often see more parasites than I do H. pylori, believe it or not. But with SIBO, so let me elaborate on that a bit. Many practitioners promote a breath test. They call it a lactulose breath test where you drink a concoction, you breathe into this bag, and then you wait, and then you breathe later. And that's supposed to detect these gases. You can also do a breath test for H. pylori. However, both of these are unnecessary. One, it's not fun. Who wants to sit around breathing into a bag for hours? And two, we don't really need a quote-unquote SIBO test to 
consider someone having SIBO, which just means small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. If we simply get a stool test run and we see species like Klebsiella and Citrobacter, which can trigger Hashimoto's autoimmune thyroid disease, if we see bacteria like that, we know that they're going to primarily grow in the small intestine. So we can basically say, okay, yes, this is SIBO. If we see um, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a bacteria that I had in my gut, we know that that also exists and likes the small intestine. So you really don't need a quote-unquote SIBO test to prove SIBO because at the end of the day, for me, I like to be very specific with my protocol. So if it's uh, Klebsiella or the Citrobacter or the Proteus, these autoimmune trigger bacteria, I'm going to use a little bit more heavy-hitting protocol because I don't, some, I don't want someone getting Hashimoto's if I can prevent that by killing off the bacteria that cause it. And so if I see something a little bit more benign but still needs to be removed like Pseudomonas, maybe we'll use a more gentle approach. But you're going to miss out on those details if you just get a quote-unquote SIBO breath test. And so this is why I do stool with everyone and even then, L, I'm sure we could go into that. I don't know if we have time today, but there's a lot of inconsistencies with stool tests where people have false negatives, where they go to this prestigious person with all these letters next to their name, or they go to this hospital. The client who we spoke about earlier who went to India, um, she had health insurance. So I said, well, why don't you just go try, go to your your local uh, clinic, and uh, she was in Dallas, Texas. She went to a prestigious hospital there. Of course, they gave the referral to the gastroenterologist. He comes in. He runs the stool sample. Everything's clear. You're fine. Just go home. Take some Tums for the for the stomach ache. I'm like, I, I doubt. A nightmare. <laughs> yeah. I doubt that you're free and clear. I said, I know you just bought a stool test two weeks ago, but I'm sorry. You have to invest again. Let's get you retested. And then that's when we found the parasite. So just because you get an all clear, that doesn't mean you're all clear, which I know is frustrating, but this is why you've got to go towards these more specialized labs that typically you are paying out of pocket. But if you just spend a bunch of money on supplements and it didn't work and you tried to fix it, but you had an all clear message, but it was a false all clear message, then you've just got to keep digging. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I get, I mean, on a separate note, but I get emails every day from people who are like, so I got my thyroid tested. The doctor said it's normal. And then you look at it and it's a total disaster. <laughs> so we oh we know that like, look, you know, you've got, if you've got a problem and you're really suffering, you, you don't waste your time with the HMO prescriptionist doctors. Get to a functional practitioner. And um, let's talk about Hashimoto's. Um, we won't go too in depth because obviously that's um, something, you know, in my book, we're probably going to be discussing on your podcast actually. But so they, they, these things trigger Hashimoto's a couple, oh, we didn't mention EBV, Epstein-Barr, but that's a huge part of this too. We've seen a lot of people who Hashimoto's was triggered by living in a place with black mold, for example, or EBV triggered it, um, or like a bacterial infection. So the way I kind of look at it to try to layman's explain it to people is if you're already primed for Hashimoto's, you know, having it in, in, in your in your system there, um, it's going to get triggered. We know grains trigger it and other things, but any kind of inflammatory issue again, right? This goes back to if you've got Lyme, if you have EBV or anything that's causing antibodies or inflammation, inflammation and antibodies beget other inflammatory, you know, processes and ignite antibodies, right? Can you tell us about these connections and why it's so important? Because with Hashimoto's, like you said, you can prevent the person from it getting ignited. If it gets ignited and they need to be treated, they can sometimes later on get off of thyroid hormone because they've now resolved these underlying issues. So there's really a chance for people with Hashimoto's who got it ignited to nip this thing in the bud and, and get rid of it so they don't have to go down that road. For sure. So when we're looking at the category of like autoimmune triggering bacteria, I first started learning about the link between Klebsiella pneumoniae and autoimmune disease when I was researching about angulosing spondylitis, which is a spine autoimmune disease. And then I started coming across, well, there's a link between gastritis. There's a link to autoimmune thyroid. So basically, I believe the future of medicine, we're going to determine that everything is actually autoimmune in nature. So whether it's heart disease, whether it's Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, my intuition is telling me that there's an autoimmune component to every disease. And I just don't think that we've we've completely figured and proved that. You know, it may, maybe science is going to take a while to catch up, but that's how I found out about Klebsiella and autoimmunity was the spondylitis issue. And then I started looking into thyroid and I figured out, okay, Klebsiella can also trigger uh, autoimmunity of the thyroid. So this is Hashimoto's. 
And same thing with H. pylori too. So if you've got suppressed stomach acid due to the H. pylori, which I didn't hit upon too much, but if you've got this bacterial infection of H. pylori, then you've got suppression of HCL. You've got suppression of digestive enzymes. Like your friend, you mentioned uh, she's got undigested food in her stool. Now the thyroid's even starving for nutrients. So even if we are trying to dial in the diet, but we've still got infections, this is why the perfect primolar paleo diet won't fix everything. It's because if you've got these infections that are uh, suppressing HCL, but also stealing your nutrients, this is why you can spin your wheels and spin your wheels, even though you promised me your diet's perfect and you've been paleo or primal for five years, but you still haven't moved the needle and your weight's not changing. Well, it's likely something like that. And she did actually have a corresponding temporary thyroid issue. Oh, did she? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. And it was resolved when she fixed everything, yeah. but you're right on with that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So a lot of times the goal is going to be multiple pronged, right? There's never one thing. I mean, you, you figured this out and you elaborated so so eloquently on it. There's not just one thing that's going to make you or break you. I mean, it could be the decision just to say no, right? Somebody says, hey, do you want to do this? No, nah, I'm going to pass, right? You know, even just that little decision <laughs> could push you in the right direction. So when people are always looking for the silver bullet, yes, there are some big silver bullets. I mean, obviously clearing out Klebsiella and any other autoimmune triggering bacteria, removing H. pylori, restoring the gut microbiome, all this stuff's great. Trying to get antibodies down as much as we can, getting thyroid markers and the thyroid markers that count back in range. All this stuff counts, but there's not one silver bullet. So my, my approach basically is I've tried to basically take all the information out there, right? There's so many podcasts. There's so many information. A lot of times people don't give a good clinical takeaway. So I want to make sure I give that. The biggest needle movers that I've found and a lot of this was with the help of Dr. Dan Kalish. He's a functional medicine guy out in California. He's done a lot of good work. So I've really looked up to him as a mentor. Adrenals is kind of your first body system, adrenal slash hormones. You always have to start there. If you try to fix a gut issue, like removing infections, but someone's got weak adrenals, they might not be able to handle the gut protocol. So we've always got to factor in adrenals. And then body system two, you've got gut. So this is mouth to anus. Anywhere in that system, things can go wrong. You have to fix it. And then body system three is detox. So this is liver. You know, this is methylation. This is MTHFR, genetic defects. This is uh, thyroid. This is making sure that your body is manufacturing energy. So your mitochondria are working. This is making sure your liver is working and you're flushing everything out. This is making sure that you're getting rid of excess estrogens. If you've got estrogen dominance, this is making sure that you're methylating. You're actually converting your vitamins and minerals to active usable forms. This is making sure that um, you're absorbing your nutrients. And those three systems, one, two, three, that one, two, three body system approach, 95% of things can be fixed just by dialing that in. And then of course, there's cases that are more complicated where you've got to go a bit deeper. Maybe there's the viruses like you mentioned, or uh, maybe there is a a mono case that's going on, or it is the Epstein-Barr, or it is the cytomegalovirus. Maybe there's these little outlying issues that have to be fixed, but generally speaking, whether it's cancer or just thyroid issue, if you're looking at those three approaches, those three body systems, a lot of times you're really going to reverse and backtrack a lot of the damage that's been done. And I want to highlight that 90% of how this can work is up to the patient. Right. Someone can call you, work with you, but if you're not at home following the protocols and doing this yourself. And so what I want to impart to is you can't go to any doctor or practitioner to hope that they're going to just give you a magic pill that's going to help things. You said mouth to anus, you're going to have to participate here, right? You can't expect that things are going to change with candida if you're still eating grains, but you're like, oh, I'll take probiotics and oregano, right? So let's yeah. talk about patient compliance and, and this as well, because it does work. It really does work. And it works better than just someone giving you a pill. I can't imagine what pill that would be, but like, for example, an antibiotic or, or whatever. So I'd love you to chat about that because, you know, I'm, I'm a very compliant patient. You know, if doctor, my doctor, and, I'm, and I'll do my own research. I make my own decisions as well. I still follow my gut, but 
I'm, I'm really compliant. I mean, I take my vitamins with me to go to a meal at dinner. I don't forget them. You know? right. I'm, I'm really religious about it. So I'd love you to touch on that because I think people need to be encouraged that they have to participate. It is really up to them. Well, so here's the thing that's interesting. I had a new client yesterday. She told me she'd been on a gluten-free, dairy-free diet for several years. And then I pressed the issue. I mean, my background was nutritional therapy. You know, I started out as a nutritional therapy practitioner, just using food as medicine. And then I realized that wasn't enough. So then that's when I had to go and study functional, but gluten-free, dairy-free diet, you and I are like, oh, that sounds like a good start. But her her breakfast was actually like a gluten-free, dairy-free Oreo and a Coca-Cola. That's gluten-free, dairy-free. I'm going to say on that one, I'm going to swear, oh shit, that's I know. Coca-Cola. Oh my God. Terrible. I know. I thought, who's, who's still drinking soda? I mean, obviously I'm not judging the lady, but it's like, wow. So at first, because she didn't give me any detail on her intake form, all she put was dairy-free, gluten-free. Because I say list your normal breakfast, lunch, and dinner for me, and she didn't. So I had to press the issue, and and, and that's why. It was a dairy-free, uh, gluten-free cookie plus Coca-Cola. And so, yes, compliance is huge, and making sure that you're just being honest, right? I mean, the days of you bowing down to the doctor, the guy comes in with the white coat, and you just do and listen to everything he says, that's BS. My relationship with someone is it's a mutual relationship, almost as if a friendship. It's, you're going to tell me everything. If you and your husband got in a fight the day that you did your adrenal test, I need to know that because if I see a spike in cortisol and I'm just suspecting that it's something going on with your gut or your hormones or your brain, something's off and we need to fix it, maybe you don't need to be fixed. Maybe you just had an argument before you collected your afternoon sample. So I need to know this stuff. Here's an example of a compliance story that, that blew me away was I had a female client who she'd been doing everything great. Gut was getting better, adrenals were getting better, hot flashes, all that stuff was better, but her weight had not moved. And I finally just talked to her and I said, is there something else going on that we haven't discussed? She said, you know what, Evan, my husband and I, we have been chronically arguing for a long time now. And I just wanted to get this off my chest. You know, here's what's been going on. Uh, we're not sure if we're going to get a divorce. We don't know what, what our future is together with the kids and blah, blah, blah. And she cried, of course, to me on the phone. And that was it. And within the next six or eight weeks, I actually met up with her in person. This was actually a lady who was a lot closer to me. We went on a hike together. She lost 20 pounds in the six-week period of us talking about that and us hanging out. I love that. I, well, hey, that you hung out with her. But also, I love that functional practitioners will ask questions like that. They are important. And if anything, maybe she hadn't talked to too many people about it or was talking to biased friends and family. And maybe even just her expressing it and downloading with you was just even enough to help relieve some of the stress of it. It was bizarre. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it now because I said, well, what did you do? What did you change in the last six weeks? How'd you lose 20 pounds? And she said, I didn't do anything different. And then I, my jaw dropped. I said, oh my God, this is it. I said, I've been looking for proof of the emotional, physical link here, and here it is. So I don't know if, if this was a cortisol issue. Was it that her adrenals, she was stuck in fight or flight and then talking about it allowed her parasympathetic to rest and digest? I don't know. I don't know the mechanism. I think there's multiple things at play, but C compliance is big, but also just honesty, I believe. And, you know, speaking the truth and, and being yourself and not feeling like you have to bow down or feel guilty because you ate a gluten-free brownie and you don't want to tell your practitioner because you know he's going to get on you. It's like, if somebody tells me that, I'll say, oh, you know what? You know, I had a gluten-free brownie too. It was at my daughter's birthday party. It was pretty darn good. And once once we establish that we're just human at the end of the day and nobody's perfect and if you want to try to be perfect, you're crazy, then things go so much, so much more smoothly. Now, I did want to make one last note and it's completely tangential, but back to the yeast overgrowth. If someone's doing kombucha, they can create more problems if they're doing too much. I have one lady. Okay, thank you so much for mentioning that. <clears throat> I believe the universe is speaking to you. I personally love the taste of kombucha. Um, I love it. And I, at one point kind of got a little bit, maybe too addicted to it. <laughs> and I tell you what, I had to remove it because of exactly what you're talking about. I do believe there's something about kombucha that on a regular basis is not good for these things. I know. So I don't know. I, I, it's a bummer, I, but let's talk. Tell, tell us no. about that because I've experienced it myself. Well, I guess the universe is doing weird things because it just like popped up in my gut to tell you, but, um, 
so I had a lady who she when we retested her, we had knocked her yeast level down, but she still had candida. And she promised me the diet was dialed in and all of that. And I said, well, what about any, what are you doing for beverages? And she said, oh, I drink about four or five kombuchas a day. And I was like, oh, good Lord, there it oh, is. That's a lot of sugar anyway, just period. You're right, right. So that was a lot of sugar there. And she was doing the GT Dave's, right? So pretty low, maybe two or four grams of sugar per bottle. But still, even then, um, I believe that you can have too much of a good thing. So I just said, okay, hey, pull out the uh, kombucha for four weeks and we'll be able to add it back in. So for me currently, I'm on a kombucha hiatus because my wife and I, we drank some a couple weeks ago and we both looked at our bellies and we were like, whoa, what's going on? You know, we were both uh, bloated. We were trying to figure out what was going on and, and it was a kombucha. So does that mean that we had a small amount of yeast in the gut that's potentially got fed? Maybe. I mean, I don't think you could never fully eradicate candida. I believe there's a normal amount. Just like you're never going to fully wipe out the microbiome. You're never going to fully get everything back to, to empty. You don't want empty, but you want a manageable level. So, yeah. So for people that think that kombucha is going to be their probiotic for the day, cancel that theory out. That's yeah. not the way to go if that's what you're trying to achieve. And also, if you've got gut issues, that might be the thing to eliminate another trial and error there. Just like with, and we could get into a five-hour discussion about this, but you mentioned at the very beginning how you had to eliminate even things like avocados and certain things for a while in order to determine what was right for you. You know, one of those big things are eggs for people. A lot of people, even myself, did not think and have eaten eggs forever and didn't know they even had an issue until you remove it and reintroduce it. And then that's when I really saw how bad they were for me personally, even though I was not technically allergic to it. So, you know, it's really important, I think, to just to pare down, eliminate when you've got lots of autoimmune and gut issues and really get simple with things. And that it's just sort of a temporary boring food sentence until you resolve things and figure out what works. Um, I could talk to you for five more hours about this. I want to have you back and talk to you about some other things, but I want to, before we close out, I think it's wonderful that you can work with people all over the world. And and I really want to talk about what you offer. You offer everyone a 15-minute functional medicine phone consultation, and you can work with people remotely. And I think this is so important because in my experience with thyroid patients, and there are good doctor lists out there of doctors that know what they're doing with thyroid, you know, with thyroid and all of these complicated things that can cause those issues, functional doctors are not available to people in a lot of states, in a lot of cities. You know, they just do not have the outlook or they can't hear on a podcast someone like you and get a feel for them, you know, before they even meet with them. And so you've got um, not only your podcast, not just paleo podcast, so people can hear even more about you than they hear here, but tell us how you work with people. Sure. Yeah. So I'll briefly mention, I actually started working out of a chiropractor's office, but uh, he was uh, more of an old school, you know, crack and go kind of guy, send people home after an adjustment. And after I started doing the nutritional therapy, functional medicine piece, people didn't need adjustments. Uh, that's another thing about adrenal fatigue or adrenal dysfunction is that you have less, um, less chiropractic adjustments that are necessary because once we started supporting the adrenals, you know, the uh, chiropractors, they'll put your legs together to look for a short leg. Oh, your hips off. Let me pop you here. Well, yep. actually that's adrenals. That's not necessarily a structural issue in most cases. And so, um, what happened is people were going from needing an adjustment every week to every month or every six weeks. And he's like, yo, what, what's going on, man? What are you doing? You know, you're, you're hurting my business. And so I quickly realized I didn't want to be under anyone else's roof anyway because I was limited to uh, Kentucky clients. I really wanted to help people worldwide. So now I've got people as far as, uh, believe it or not, Singapore, Kuwait, uh, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Europe, and then of course, tons in the United States. And so for me, there's no limit to care that you can receive because you're still getting the same lab test. Even if you're in California, I've got hundreds of clients in California. It's the same lab test and it's the same protocol. We're just chatting via Skype or phone instead. Now, do you do you miss out on you know me laying you down and doing a functional evaluation where I'm palpating your organs and checking for you know tension in the small intestine area and feeling your ileocecal valve? Yeah, you miss out on that, but the testing is going to fill in the gaps because if you've got tension in your gut where I wouldn't have physically been able to touch you, I'm just going to be able to see. Okay, look, there's a bacterial infection on the stool test. If I would have touched you, I would have found that anyway. So um, that's how it works and. About the compliance, I mean, 90% of people, you know, they've already been tuned into paleo or primal. So they've already got 
so much education, which education is the first step for me. So if someone's already educated, it makes my job so much easier because I don't have to waste my breath about why we need to pull out grains or why we need to pull out dairy for six weeks. And so, yeah, people just look me up. They could just type in Evan Brand. I've got about 240 uh, podcast episodes, put out one every single week since 2012. And uh, I'm in the trenches, you know, and this is not to, to downplay other people or to, to boost myself up. But one thing that I've always been interested in is not just what the PubMed says, not just what this study says or what that study says or what this person says. At the end of the day, it's all about the clinical takeaway. And I've actually learned more from my clients than I have from any book or course or uh, schooling. I've learned more from my clients. If you just listen a lot of times they're going to reveal what's going on. And so, I don't know, that's that's my that's my little pitch there. I love it. I love your approach. And again, evanbrand.com and also Not Just Paleo Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll definitely have you back on and so appreciate the work you're doing. And if anyone's out there and they can't find a good doctor, get to Evan Brand's website and get on it. Thank you, Elle. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us today. My pleasure. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching but have been held back by worries such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching, and we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.